Welcome, everybody, to the University of Applied Research and Development's Educators Podcast, and I'm delighted to be here with Dr. Kimberly Honick, who is the Director of Education Programs. She has three schools in Orange, New Jersey, which she looks after. So welcome. Lovely to have you here, Kimberly. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Why don't you tell us about your role and the things that you're doing now in educational leadership? Sure. So I've had the privilege of serving in public education for 28 years, and I've served as a school and district leader since 2001. And right now what I'm working on is a blended personalized learning, blended learning model, um, which incorporates three components. Um, it would include um, online platform work with children. Then it would include, uh, the next component would be working on engaging tasks where the children take the content that they've learned and apply it in tasks and they can work with their teacher and work with each other where it's a practice application. And then the third component is using design thinking to facilitate project-based learning. And that's where the kids really demonstrate mastery of what they've learned um, through the creation of projects where they start with uh, empathy and think about what they want to solve for, who they're solving it for, ask a lot of questions, um, do some research, surveys, that kind of stuff, idea eight, develop their prototype, and then present their findings. So it's something I've been working on for the past few years, and it's incredibly relevant now, uh, given COVID-19. And uh, here in America, as I'm sure um, around the world, we had to move very quickly into crisis um, online learning. So I'm working on now a blended learning model, um, which is uh, it's very exciting to me and is a multifaceted project. I heard you say empathy. Yes. Tell me more about why that's important to you, having that in the model. Sure. Well, empathy is really important to me um, for a lot of reasons. Um, my first real connection that I came across with empathy in the delivery of instruction came with my work on understanding by design, which is um, Grant Wiggins and Jay Matai's model. I am uh, extensively trained in understanding by design and thoroughly love it as a unit of study model. So there are three phases, um, stages, I'm sorry, three stages to understanding by design. The first is clarity of content. So that's where we get clear about what we want kids to know and be able to do, identify those performance standards, um, big questions, big essential questions, big ideas, clarity of content. The second piece is assessment. So we think about how are we going to assess um, whether the children have mastered the standards and um, the content that we outlined for them in, in stage one. And there is a performance-based component to that, as well as formative and summative pieces. And the third would be your instructional plan, your delivery of instruction. So what are the instructional strategies and approaches that we're going to be um, unpacking in order to deliver that content? And so as a part of the UBD model, it's called the six facets of understanding. And one of the six facets of understanding is empathy. And it really gets to the heart of having children experience what it's like to be that or in that and then fill in the blank content, right? So if we're talking about language arts literacy, it's not just taking a bird's eye view or I like to say a good year blip view of the character. It's like, what does it mean to really be that character? And there's a lot of instructional approaches we can take to have kids get that, but it's not a matter of 
um, gee, I feel bad for, or gee, I'm sorry for, that's sympathy. But really get into the heart of empathy to really understand what it's like to be. So you can take this in any historical context, whether it be the civil rights movement, or the civil war here in the States, or any kind of international study. Um, but it's really getting to the heart of what it, it is to be, do, have, feel that experience, that character and such. And I fell in love with that. Because when I started to integrate empathy into my units of study, and then when I coached my teachers um, to do that, I found that the depth of understanding was exponential that the children were experiencing. So that's one reason. Second reason is if you really look at the research, um, there's three bodies of research that I absolutely adore and think is incredibly meaningful and relevant. One is Dan Goldman's work on emotional intelligence. The second is Brene Brown's work. And she has written many books, but I am definitely a huge fan of Brene Brown and, and her research. Um, and the third is Brian Stevenson, who wrote a book called Just Mercy. Now, all of these three references are research-based, but they're very, very different. Dan Goldman's work is around emotional intelligence. Brene Brown is a researcher um, and has collected, you know, years of data on um, vulnerability mm -hmm. and such. And Brian Stevenson is an attorney. And um, I was fascinated by his story because basically his role is to work with inmates on death row who've been wrongly charged. And what's interesting about these three different bodies of work is that the number one factor that played a huge part on the participant's life was empathy. So what, what the research shows is that, you know, when people engage in undesired behaviors or seek to harm others, it's really a lack of empathy that they're experiencing. So I couldn't do all that um, research justice at this very moment, but those are three major pieces that I've studied over the years um, in conjunction with understanding by design and the six facets of understanding to think that, you know what? Empathy is critically, critically important. It's also explicitly called out in the CASEL standards. So CASEL.org are the five um, competencies of social emotional learning um, that we work with here. And so empathy is called out there. And so in looking at models of instruction, um, I came across design thinking. And it's a model out of Stanford um, University in California here in the States. And there are five different pieces to that stage. It starts in empathy. And basically the reason why I chose to use design thinking to facilitate project-based learning is one, I really wanted the projects that the kids to do to, that the kids will do to really be in, anchored in something important and meaningful and relevant to them. So very often when we look at assessment, whether it's formative or assessment uh, or summative, it's like what the teacher thinks would be important to demonstrate or know out of this. Here, children take the content and what they've learned and apply it and being able to unpack or solve for something that connects to them, an issue, um, a different... Um, it could be social justice, it could be environmental, it could be anything that needs to be solved for. And so the empathy part of it, it's really just seeking to understand the 
um, the nature of the cause of the problem or issue and ask questions. And that really helps kids form their why as well, which is there's a huge research around and a lot of talk about finding your why, right? So developing that empathy is reflective of the kid's why. And I want them to really get excited about learning, excited about demonstrating their learning, and to really make a connection, whether it be a local community connection, state, country, international, whatever cause is important for them. I personally get super excited when I see wonderful things that children are doing all over the world to, to give, right? And that's where that comes from. So giving those kids those instructional experiences in school is really important. And starting with empathy helps them develop that seek to understand um, and really build that, mu that muscle. And there's just, just all positive things that come out of that. And so that's why the design thinking model was so attractive to me because it starts in empathy and then it just builds it out. The kids do their research, find information about it, come up with an idea to solve for what they're looking to solve for, play around with it, develop a prototype, and then share, right? So I think the power in this is the sharing so that we can really understand their thinking um, and, you know, and how they've came, come to their conclusions. And so it's really the application of the skills, but it really helps develop that sense of, that sense of self, that sense of community, that sense of seeking to understand. Um, and so empathy is really super important to me. And I think it's just something that kids really need to be working with. Sounds like a powerful model. I believe that it is a powerful model for sure. Tell us about working with the teachers when you're coaching them and helping them to implement the model. So I first started this work approximately four years ago and um, we really need to, needed to make some changes at my school. And so we spent a whole year looking at the data and multiple measures of data. Um, we had our attendance data, our uh, student demographic data, we had our behavioral data, we had our academic data, both what the kids are doing in school and in standardized tests and such. And we also looked at our practices. So basically our schools, many of our schools here in America, our high schools in particular, um, are still designed under an industrial model that no longer exists, right? We're in a 21st century global knowledge economy. And so uh, I really wanted to make some changes, but I didn't want it to come from me, just from me. Then it would be my thing. It needed to be our thing, right? So we spent a year looking at the data and I actually did a book study with my teachers. Um, and the book that I chose to do is called The Ends of Average by Todd Rose. And it's an amazing book. It's not necessarily about education. It's about, um, it's about the average in general and how, where the average started and how the um, traditional models of education started, how they got to America, and why they stuck, right? And they stuck for so long. But the book makes a, a clear, compelling argument that basically um, we really need to think bigger and broader than the traditional average and that we do need to take a look at our practices. And so spending time unpacking that book, and we met literally every week for an hour after school in our book club, and um, it was one of the, the many things that we did um, to really grow the, the why do we need to do something different. I knew the what, but I put that off, which is the model I just shared. But I needed to build a solid why 
we're going to make some changes knowing that uh, they would be substantial and we would be doing things differently. And it wasn't the children that I was concerned about. This was high school. The children that I was concerned about, it was the teachers and that type of change that we were not only proposing at the time, but very much willing to implement the following school year. So that's where we started with that work. And uh, I invested probably about $30,000 in training the teachers. So the teachers were trained for two full days um, on design thinking model with trainers right from Stanford. And I felt that investing in the teachers, professional learning was going to be the, I believe in investing in professional capital, okay? So the best thing we can do is invest in our teachers because the research is clear. Um, good, great teachers matter, right? And leave a lasting footprint. So also research supports, Joyce and Showers research um, as a big on this is a coaching model, right? So we wanted to integrate a coaching model in doing this piece. So in order to create the type of learning environment we wanted to see, I knocked down a lot of the traditional high school systems and created new ones. So one was I got rid of the departments. So usually there's an English department, a science department, knocked down the departments, and I created grade level interdisciplinary teams at the high school. So there was a team nine, team 10, team 11, team 12. I did not hire any additional teachers. I used existing staff, changed the schedule, put in professional learning communities that embedded right in the day. So teachers would have the time every day. They had the same time together. Um, and that I, I wanted to de-emphasize teaching content and focus on teaching children. And in order to do that, I wanted to create a team of caring adults that were solely responsible for that group of children that they were teaching. So on the team with the four core content, I had a world language teacher, I had a phys ed and health teacher, I had a inclusion teacher. So that got things mixed up a little bit. And instead of the you know, traditional schemas, we went to that. Um, I changed the schedule. We went from a, uh, a block to a rotating drop, which was sophisticated and it, it had its challenges, but it, 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 it was a lot of change, I understand. Um, and um, just the way we organized things was, were very different. And um, myself and our vice principals, their priority was just supporting the teachers in this new delivery of instruction. So um, we started personalized learning with the format I, I shared before um, with the ninth grade. And we trained um, the team, team nine. And I had one of my vice principals um, specifically over team nine to facilitate this model. And that's what we did. And so the kids spent time on their platform. They spent time on their tasks and then with their projects. Um, we did school-wide projects by grade level. Uh, we did actually one of them to start the school year off with this piece. Um, and, and here's what was fascinating about that. So I will tell you that I was super excited about this initiative. And quite honestly, I really didn't, my, my ex, I didn't really have particular outcomes in terms, what I wanted to do was focus on the process because things were very, very different. 
So I, I had a teacher leader who facilitated um, what we called a, dream, a, a design team. So in order to pull this off, I needed, I needed to um, pull talent to be able to facilitate the design aspect of this. So I had um, two art teachers, two music teachers, an English teacher who we changed her to teach drama, um, two technology teachers and coaches, um, and um, a, another teacher coach who worked on the design team. And they were collaborative. Oh, and I added, I'm sorry, I forgot one. I had a construction teacher. I added a construction teacher to the mix because I needed, I needed to put a shop in to be able to build stuff and make things. So the design team supported the grade level teams in the development and execution of their projects. So, and the design team, there was a teacher leader and he ran that, he facilitated that. And so he did training for the staff in the beginning of the year and then through. And the teachers developed the process. And it's, it's what I wrote about on my LinkedIn article. I wrote an article on this on LinkedIn. And um, I was so super excited. And um, so we did a, um, a pre-survey and a post-survey with the staff and the children. And at the end of the first design challenge, um, each grade had produced its design and the children voted which design they wanted to represent their grade level. So I was super stoked. I was like, yes, this is so awesome. Each one had their, you know. And, um, and quite honestly, my special needs students thrived. My self-contained student, uh, special needs students in the ninth grade won the design challenge for their grade level team. And I'm happy to show pictures and video. I, got, I have all this documented. I am happy to share what this looked like. Um, they, they, they did an amazing job. And it was truly a grassroots, teacher-driven, you know, it was clearly my idea. I mean, I take ownership of all that. But um, what was very interesting to me was looking at the post data, the survey data. I looked at it and my jaw dropped. I was shocked about the data that I saw that what my teachers shared. So basically, um, you know, we embrace the fail forward and fail fast model, right? And it's okay, you know, all that, <laughs> all that stuff, right? And what I learned um, is that that's really hard for teachers to embrace. And it may sound great for the kids, but not so much for them. They were not comfortable. They were very uncomfortable being uncomfortable. <laughs> They're very uncomfortable not being in charge of the classroom. They're very uncomfortable with giving it over to the kids and have them create stuff out of very simple things. They're very, very uncomfortable with that. Um, and, and what's funny is that um, in the data, uh, the teachers who were most comfortable were the ones who really prepared and just were able to relinquish the facilitation of the class to the children and let them do their thing, you know, and just serve as a facilitator as opposed to, you know, doing the sage on the stage stuff. And I actually, some of my, it was most interesting. Some of my teachers like said, this was the most horrible thing ever. No, literally, not, when I said what went well, right? Nothing, nothing went well. Um, it was crazy, <laughs> right? And so I put together, and I'm happy to share this. I put together a PowerPoint for a faculty meeting. 
And uh, the PowerPoint started with fail forward, fail fast, like three or four slides of those kind of fail forward quotes. So I said to them, you know, when you see these three, you know, slides, what, when you see these quotes, what comes to mind? You know, we had an open dialogue. Oh, this is great. We should give the kids, you know, great, great, great. I said, it's very interesting. You feel that way about the children and this um, concept, but you don't embrace that for your own practice. Mm. And I said, basically, I said, you guys were so hard on it. Design think team thought they were a complete failure. I thought they rocked it, right? They were so hard on themselves. And they were hard on each other. And I pulled up the data and I said, nothing went well? Like, really? <laughs> nothing? Is that really true? And I don't know what they thought. I was like, I am so stoked about this. This is awesome, right? <laughs> and so it was kind of like a reverse paradigm. And then, um, and then we brainstormed. I said, well, what can we change then? We've done this once. What do we want to change? And so they felt that doing this school-wide for the first time was um, a bit aggressive, and that's fine. <laughs> um, yeah, well, you know, I'd go big or go home. So, you know, it's okay. Um, and so what we did was we uh, picked um, – uh, we, we asked a grade-level team to opt in. So it was Team 10, so our 10th grade team opted in for the next challenge. And the, the teachers ran the challenge with the design team, and it was awesome. If I show you the artifacts, what the kids came up, like their projects and stuff – they were awesome. Um, and our ninth grade did really, really well with the personalized learning piece. Um, they adjusted very quickly to the classrooms. I took all the desks out, replaced them all with flexible seating. They had their laptop, conferred with the kids. It worked out, worked out really well. So um, that's a little bit about the instructional design that I've been working on the, um, the past few years. I'm working on that now. Um, actually, the, the challenge here is the preschool space. So yes, I believe this can be done with 14-year-olds and four-year-olds, absolutely. And uh, yeah, so it was, a, it was an amazing experience. But that's definitely an instructional model that I'm working on. Um, I truly believe that um, you know, spending some time and researching and looking at the data and doing some book clubs with what makes sense, um, setting the time to get the why done, and then um, just finding that passion and jagged talent of your staff um, because it will emerge when we allow it mm. and, and run with it and allow them to play with it. And, um, and that it's a good thing to try new things. And, um, but my experience is definitely the children are fine. It's the adults that need the support in doing that and using coaching. And, um, and just, you know, it's okay. It's all good. It's going to work out. So They need some empathy. There's no doubt they need <laughs> empathy. They need empathy and they need to know that it's okay to try and there's nothing wrong with that. And, you know, that uh, getting out of the box is a good thing. You know, I, I, I explained to them, let's look at the, you know, future career trajectories here. I mean, most of the, the jobs our kids are going to be having don't exist yet. Mm -hmm. and, and looking, I pulled up data about what company, I've done the research, what companies are looking for. They want collaboration. They want critical thinking. They want creativity. They want you know, employees, a team member who know how to work on a team and who can communicate and who can, you know, design and who can, you know, innovate and come up with things. I mean, we're in an ever-changing time. And so where does that start? It can't start post-secondary, you know, um, education. It's got to start young. And I've had the privilege of visiting schools around the country here in the States that are doing it and doing it well. And so what I did was um, I took the best of what I saw 
and learn from the pitfalls of others and, and rolled it out that way. And, um, you know, I, I was and still am was so excited about it and uh, am doing it again. So Kimberly, over what period of time was that, what you've just described, the team set up and projects and everything? Over how two many years? years? Two. One planning, two. One planning year and then one implementation year. Mm-hmm. Changing a schedule, setting up professional learning, doing a reorganization of the way that departments don't work, you do it in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, doing projects, design thinking, implementing new models this is something that some people take 10 years to do over a decade and phase it in can understand why the teacher said it might have been a bit aggressive but you've got significant significant change by significant energy and big goals big hairy audacious goals i just love that obviously your passion for seeing kids get something superb out of their time in school is something that really drives you it does um the reason why um well i've done this not exactly this design, but I've done this type of work before. So having to move quickly and show results, I was a principal of a um, school improvement grant school here in New Jersey, which is um, the bottom 10% of the state. And we received additional funding and we had to turn, we had three years. So I came in year two um, and I, and so I had two years to, to meet the um, BHAGs, big hair audacious goals, right? So I'm used to doing that. It's, um, I'm used to it. I'm very comfortable with doing things differently. Very comfortable with change. I'm very comfortable with opposition. I don't take it personally. Um, you know, and, and, it, and it's not easy work, right? I mean, um, but um, one thing I don't do is, is change direction or redirect um, if some people don't want to try or do it or such. Um, the reality is that spending some time anchored in the why is really, really important and, and being available and listening. You know, I had, I'm in the hallways, I'm in classrooms, I had a mobile desk. So I had the construction teacher, he made me a mobile desk on wheels out of a filing cabinet. <laughs> I have pictures of that too. So, you know, yeah, you, you have to, it, 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 yes. So you also have to do things a little bit differently, you know, and you have to be present and you have to be supportive um, but you have to be really clear about the vision. And what I think, uh, I can't even say really helps because that's, that's putting it mildly. But um, what I did in the beginning of the school year of all my schools is I took time to create a shared mission and vision. And so by shared, I mean every single stakeholder in that schoolhouse is at the table. And we map out why do we exist and what's our vision, what do we aspire to be and we articulate our core values and our operating values. And then um, this is the work of Steve Barkley. I don't know if you've heard of him, but um, he's amazing. Um, he has you know, his website, podcast, Twitter, all that kind of stuff. He's on LinkedIn, Steve Barkley. And um, he, I learned from him to construct a defi- definition of student achievement. So what is it like for kids to achieve at our school here? What does that look like? And mm-hmm. that's what we did. We spent time writing all those things down. So I had the teachers working in their teams. Um, I used to do it on chart paper. Now we do it in Google Docs. And I just go in and synthesize it. And um, my teachers broke it down into like um, social, academic, you know, I can share that document as well, what that looks like. So when you have a six, seven page document of your shared mission and your shared vision and your core values and your definition of student achievement, 
And then what are the behaviors we need from the children? What are the behaviors we need from the staff? And what are the behaviors we need from the leadership to make that happen? So if you take the time to do that right in the beginning, you have, your work is anchored in that. Mm. And you keep it, and then you put posters all around the wall. I had posters on the walls of all this stuff. All you gotta do is look by and there it is. There's our core values, there's our mission, there's our vision. And, and then we do a reflection of our mission and our shared document um, January, February and say, you know, are we doing what we said we're gonna do? And if I'm not doing what you asked of me, hold me accountable. And if you're not doing what you said we needed to do, I'm gonna hold, we're gonna hold each other accountable and we're gonna hold the children accountable collectively. So that's what made it doable is because this is what we said we were going to do. Mm. Not the principal, not the, mm. no, no, no. We said, this is what it looks like here. We said, this is what we need from the children. We said, this is what we need from the staff. We said, this is what we need from leadership. And my list was always the longest, by the way, even longer than the children. And so anchoring the work that way it makes it share and collective because we've all contributed to this. And I mean, everybody, guidance counselors, child study team, teachers, everyone. And I also mean, you know, we have a tendency to focus on math and literacy, not here. Every content area was engaged and involved. Mm -hmm. Everybody's important. And then once you find out what I asked my staff, you know, what's important to you? What do you love to do? What's your passion? You know, and that's how I was able to pull the design team and, and the superstars who rolled things out because I asked them what's important to you, you know, and then there, people are eager to contribute to the learning community um, when they do things they want to do. And even if it's not even school related, uh, meaning, meaning content related, you know, well, how can we integrate that in? And you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised how you have different people working adults working and learning together that didn't even talk to each other before isolated in these departments where most of the time they've been together 10, 15, 20 years. Mm. So I don't know of any other model in industry and in, in the workplace that looks that way, you know? And one of the books that I absolutely love and is my probably on the top of my top three for, for leadership would be Creativity Inc. by Ed Catmill. And he is the uh, CEO, I'm not uh, president, CEO. Uh, he's in charge of Pixar, <laughs> that little company called Pixar. Yep. And reading his book um, was, was monumental. It just brought a lot of things, things that I've known and I've learned about, but then I saw it in actual practice. And really it's the culture and climate of the workplace is super important and mm. how we work and learn together. Um, and I learned a lot from that book. Um, I know the pedagogy and I know the research. I've been doing this a long time, but what I appreciated was seeing the application of such in a different setting. Right. And it was really valuable to me. And I'm like, you know what? That's what I will. I want to focus on culture and climate. And that's one thing that the one thing that Pixar like will, will not let go of like a pit bull with a bone is story. The story has to be right. Right. So I said, here, we, what is our thing, you know? And our thing is we wanted kids engaged in school. We wanted kids who very often don't feel invested in school or they don't feel, excuse me, feel that it's relevant. We wanted them engaged. We wanted them invested. This is important. 
And we wanted them to find their voice there. And if we want them to find their voice, that looks very differently. So how do we do that? How do we engage kids? How do we have them find their voice if we teach everyone the same or just keep telling them what they're going to learn if they don't have any ownership in that? So that's really where it came from too. So for our uh, members of our Masters in Education group who uh, maybe they're not principals yet or directors of schools, we have some of those. Um, what sort of career advice in terms of learning and experiences do you think are really important in these next few years? So something that I think is really important is, is just do really what you love to do. And I would say try not to put a square peg in a round hole. And what I mean by that is this. I had the privilege of serving as a uh, coach and leadership consultant for a um, principal's institute last summer. And um, I coached, I had a vice, I, just, I happened to have had vice principals. And I had three different vice principals, and these are one-on-one -on -one, you know, sessions, um, talk to me about um, interviewing for principal positions and not getting them and just like, what can I do differently and such. And um, although the cases were a little bit different, um, one was around, um, he, he was told that um, the other candidate's presentation was better. I said, well, respectfully, presentations don't lead schools. Right? So it's okay, wait for the right, but I said, but be you, what's important to you? What excites you? What gets you up in the morning and go to school? So he, he was sharing with me that he runs a, um, he, he started, he told me the whole trajectory of it. I'm going to give you the very abridged version that um, he wanted to start a group for fathers, for dads at the school to help dads become more engaged in school. Loves his, 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 his dad group, beamed when he talked about it, um, talked about how he was able to grow it and such. I said, that's it. Mm. Talk about that right and have more of those experiences um the other one was uh i said well same kind of thing what you know what lights your fire what excites you about your day and well i love working with kids and basically it was like the small like counseling social emotional learning component of things and um and so basically the conversation was why do you want to be a principal and you know what all three of them couldn't answer that question and I said, well, you know, why are you interviewing? And they're like, well, I've been a vice principal seven years of it. And that's, you know, what we're supposed to do. And I said, not so much. I said, you know, do we have clarity around what the principalship is and what it looks like on a daily basis and what you can focus on and what you don't focus on? And I know a lot of principals who function as vice principals. That's not the role. With principal... You have to be willing to, you are a, I, I used to call myself a ringmaster. I facilitated three's ring circus. I'm the ringmaster. I'm not the performer. I'm not making it, I'm getting the laughs. I'm not, right? I'm not playing with the lions, right? And, and that's my strength. I'm, I'm vision. I'm big picture. I can sell my vision to a school. I, that's, I'm good at that, right? Um, you know, um, I love curriculum and instruction. Okay. Some of the other stuff I'd have to find somebody, you know, I'm very good at, um, surrounding myself with people who have strengths that are not mine. I don't need another me. Right. So I would say that 
think about what you really want to do and leverage your strengths and, and your passion and, and your why and start with your why and just think about what do I want to do and try not to attach it to an outcome or a role because that's not going to make it. Mm-hmm. What's going to make it is when, you've, you know, when you're really doing work that you can champion and you want to get up in the morning every day. And mm-hmm. sometimes that's a role of a supervisor. I love this content. I love this particular area. And I just want to coach teachers and support teachers and work on that. Go mm-hmm. for it. You don't have to do anything else. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want to do other things, teach, you know, teach a graduate course, teach a college course, do, you know, things like that. Um, do curriculum writing committees, things like that. Um, you know, vice principal, there's a lot of dirty detail in that work. You're really getting the weeds there. If you don't like weedy work, you're probably not going to enjoy that. Right. Um, but there, and there's different roles, you know, different focus areas and such. Um, and you know, sometimes it's a direct, it can be anything, but I would say that just really hold on to your why and do things that bring you joy and get you up in the morning and that you're excited about. And I guarantee that the right fit and the right role will come to you um, instead of trying to put a square peg in a round hole. We don't have to, education, I'm not sure in all areas, quite honestly, but I can speak, I can speak from my experience that education is very often very hierarchical. And it doesn't have to be that way. Mm. It doesn't have to be that way. We don't have to do something because that's the next step. So mm. it may or may not be. You may skip one. You may double jump one. You may, you know, and it's okay to be where we are. There's nothing wrong with that. I know two that I can think of amazing vice principals. Amazing. And they don't want to be principals. And they get to focus on their – I tell you, these two, these two ladies have – monumentally change lives and being a principal you you won't be able to do that not not say it doesn't happen that way but not the way not the magic they work and they have their niche and you know so I would encourage that I've seen many happy people that way and I've also seen many unhappy people because they think they should be doing something Mm. Dr. Kimberly really want to thank you for your time thank you 